This is episode 124, Health and Healing with Dr. Noel Pence. My name is Tudor Alexander, and this is the Dance of Life podcast. Every week, my goal is to inspire you to take action towards what you love, live a transformed life, and enjoy the journey there. Are you ready? Let's go. A doctor's job is to find health. Anyone can find disease. That was Andrew Taylor Still, founder of Osteopathic Medicine, and I just learned that quote today, and I absolutely love it. I'm here with Dr. Noel Pence. What's up, Noel? How are you? Hey, how's it going? Dr. Pence now, I should say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we've known each other for a good, uh, what, we were talking like, what, 2007? Since God, it's already been 12 years? Yeah, I was going to tell you, the the first time I remember meeting you, I was uh, at a collegiate dance competition, and... uh, you were probably the best couple uh, at ASU, and so you were the only one competing in gold. And so uh, <laughs> ASU and U of A each just had one couple. So it was like we were sending up our champion yeah, to face you. off for the whole school. <laughs> and uh, I was just kind of watching nonchalantly. And then you got up there and you did what I would call the patented tutor move, <laughs> where you did a hand clap with the arms spread wide. And you said, you all ready for a show? <laughs> <laughs> and I wasn't up until that point, but after you said that, I was like, yeah, I really, I, wow. I'm ready. And then, since there was only two couples dancing in gold, one of the judges went out to the middle of the floor, and uh, it was a Latin dance, so you're not really supposed to move that much, but you were on one side of the floor, the U of A couple was on the other side, and the judge was watching them with their back to you, and you and Kat split up, went probably 50 feet apart, did a half circle and landed right in front of the judge a foot away, <laughs> did another hand clap, spread, arm spread, and then she dropped to the ground and danced up you, completely blocking off her view from the other couple. And I just thought, uh, the confidence, <laughs> the sheer audacity. That is awesome. I, I was so inspired that it really helped me take my showmanship and my dancing skills to the next level. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, man. I I. Totally. I mean, I remember vaguely that event from God. Like I said, it was twelve years ago. But yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's uh, that's inspired me this morning because I'm like, man, I need to get to get some of that confidence back in my dancing. I I have been you know a pro now for I don't know. It's been at least ten years, and it's like it's funny how you get. I I often it's funny. I was actually recently thinking about you know my my career. Let's say back in college and stuff when I knew less in a sense. You know when you know less. And you could say that about anything, you know, we're using dancing in this case, but you could say that about anything. And the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And so it it wears on your confidence a little bit too, because you become more practical, you become more, let's say, pragmatic, or, you know, you tend to utilize doubt in your decision making a lot more. So uh, thank you for sharing that. That's actually, that inspired me a little bit this morning. You were by far (laughs) my favorite couple to watch. It was very that's that's cool. Gosh, that's good times. Well, so now you are a full-fledged osteopath, my friend. That's that's pretty awesome. How long have you been doing that? Um, well, it's been a long process. Uh, you know, four years of undergrad, four years of medical school, and three years of residency training, and I've been out for the last three years. So wow. I'm trained in internal medicine and traditional osteopathic medicine. Um, right now I have a practice uh, up in Bandon, Oregon, where I work part-time in the hospital. I'm seeing inpatients, and then I have a clinic where I do traditional osteopathic And what's the difference, you know, even just for myself, actually, I'm I'm not super familiar, but I, I know a little bit. Just so people who are listening, what is the difference between an osteopath and, let's say, you know, a regular doctor or internal medicine doctor, so they know? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the term traditional osteopath, uh, which is uh, I borrowed from a friend of mine. And the reason why I use that is because an osteopathic physician can really be in any specialty. Um, and so you may have a doctor that practices just internal medicine, and there's really not a whole lot of difference. But there are um, practitioners that do traditional osteopath that do uh, a manual therapy. Um, and so that's when I mention osteopath, that's what I'm going to talk about is mm-hmm. that kind of osteopath. So traditional osteopath, they diagnose and they treat people with their hands. And that's the biggest difference. And... Um, like might, a chiropractor, kind of? or So you might say it's similar to a chiropractor or to a physical therapist or something like that, mm-hmm. um, but it is different, and so I'm going to go over 
um, a few of the ways that I think uh, this type of manual medicine differs from other. And so there's at least three main things that we focus on that I feel like is, sets us apart from other practitioners. Mm-hmm. And so the first one is uh, we look at the whole patient. And so I'll give you an example of that. Um, I had a patient come to me that was complaining of ankle pain. And so when I look at the ankle itself, she had uh, a ligamentous restriction that I probably could have treated pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I felt the whole patient, um, it felt like uh, kind of a low vitality. And when I talk about vitality, there's a sense in the patient where you can actually feel um, how much uh, energy or ability the patient has to self-correct lesions on their own or to sustain the treatment that you give them. Hmm. And so when I felt the patient, um, the vitality felt off. So I listened to the entire patient rather than just the ankle, and I felt major restrictions up in the uterus. Hmm. And so I asked the patient, you know, are you having cramps or any kind of pain? And she said, well, yeah, actually, um, you know, my periods have been really bad lately, and I'm having a lot of cramping pain. And so I treated in the whole body what felt like needed to be treated, which ended up being um, the uterus, some restrictions around the uterus and the intestines and around the whole abdominal cavity. And after I treated all the things in the whole body that felt like needed to be treated, and I went back to the ankle, the vitality was much higher. I knew that if I treated, not only would it get better results, but it would last a lot longer. Hmm. So then I treated the ankle. And um, so... Later on that weekend, she hiked the stairs at Manitou Springs. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's no, like it sounds hundreds <laughs> of stairs. It's very difficult. And she did great. And not only was her ankle pain completely gone and really stressed it by going up tons of stairs, but her cramping pain was completely resolved. Wow. And that didn't come back. And so... So what did you do exactly? When you say you treated her, like what, what was the treatment like? Was it like physical manipulation, like a chiropractic kind of thing? Was it so, release of muscles, that kind of stuff? So the way that osteopaths treat is, an, is a huge range. Um, and it can be very uh, physical and direct, um, very much like a chiropractic uh, adjustment or even with tools. I've seen even in the head bones where they put a balloon up inside your nose and expanded it to... To realign the bones, bones. yeah. Uh Yeah, and so it can be very aggressive to very, very subtle where, um, you know, if you were observing a practitioner, you wouldn't think that they were doing anything because the motions are so subtle. Mm. And so there's a huge range, and it depends on a particular osteopath. Typically, they tend to align with a certain style, but then it also depends with the patient. So I treat very gently, Mm -hmm. and so a lot of people are like, are you doing anything? And I say, yes, I am. (laughs) Right. But sometimes when something is so restricted, um, like uh, if they had a trauma and a rib is out of place Mm -hmm. and I've tried the gentle stuff for a good amount of time and I'm not getting any motion, then I will force a subluxation back into place and Mm -hmm. that can take a lot of force. So there's there's a lot of range. So the first thing that the osteopaths do, which I feel is a little unique, now some other practitioners do this, but on the whole. Uh, so osteopaths look at the whole patient. Whenever you come with a specific complaint, any good osteopath is going to look at your rest of your body and mm. treat the things that are going to play into whole your whole systems whole approach. The second thing that that we do um, is look for cause, and uh, it's it's very common nowadays to to have a patient where they present with symptoms and you give them medications to mask their symptoms. And sometimes a good doctor will go one layer deeper and treat, I would say, the um, most superficial cause or the most direct cause. Um, But even after we treat that, we look for something else that may be underlying. So I'll give you another example. So I had a patient that came to me that um, he was a caddy, so he walked a lot for work, and he worked at a golf course where you could only carry the bags. You couldn't use a car. And so he came to me and he couldn't walk and he was having terrible heel pain. So he was told he probably had a a stress fracture in the heel. And when I went to examine his heel, I couldn't get down to the bone because he had so much sensitivity just over the skin. Wow. So I thought it's more likely a nerve issue, a neuropathy um, or nerve pain. So I checked his whole body and sure enough, his whole back and his sacrum was completely locked up with no motion whatsoever. (laughs) I felt like an 80-year-old back. 
And so... Um, and this guy was what, like in his 30s, 40s? Yeah, yeah, he was in his early 30s. Yeah. So I treated his low back um, the best I could and uh, immediately got 30% improvement. And I treated him half a dozen times and he got probably 90% better. But anything he did would set it off. So he couldn't work anymore, which for him, that's a really big deal, <laughs> cutting off your whole source of income. And just playing tetherball with his son, who was about 10, um, threw out his back again, and then he couldn't Tetherball is intense, man. I remember that stuff in <laughs> elementary school. <laughs> it can be an intense game. get pretty intense. <laughs> and he, he wasn't very good about taking it easy when I told him All to. Right. So what that told me was we haven't found the cause because mm. if I treat somebody's back, it should stay better mm-hmm. unless they are an 80-year-old. But a young person has um, an Natural intense healing, capacity yeah. to heal naturally. And so when I treat his back the next time, I sat and wait, waited to find the cause. And eventually, um, and you'll find that if you sit and listen long enough, um, you'll get better communication, and that's the same with the body. Hmm. And so if I sat long enough, I felt the body um, almost uh, direct me to or light up his pancreas. Hmm. And I don't know what the pancreas has to do with the low back, and it certainly doesn't have anything to do with the foot. But I treated the pancreas and all the restrictions around the pancreas, freed up and treated fine. Wow. And at the end of the treatment, I asked him, you know, you know, this is what I found. Does that mean anything to you? And he said, well, I had pancreatitis a few years ago. They never really found a cause. And I just thought that was interesting. Hmm. Um And then uh he didn't come back for his next appointment, and I thought that's a little unusual. So... um few weeks later, I called him up, and his back pain is completely gone, and his foot pain is completely gone, and he's back to catting and carrying wow. heavy golf bags and fine. So to me, what that told me was, um, you know, I could have treated his back, you know, regularly for the rest of his life, mm-hmm. but the thing that happened to be setting it off was the pancreas. And I don't know why, but I know in his case that that was the underlying cause. And so even patients that come to me with other complaints, after I treat their chief complaint or what they come to me for, then I go back and I look, is there a deeper cause? Yeah, something underlying. So that this never comes back or that it doesn't come back in a different way with the new disease because we haven't treated the underlying cause. See, that's that's phenomenal. I I personally have had a lot of uh, experience with like chiropractors over the years. I, I had an injury. It's funny you mentioned you know my first uh, dance partner back in college, Kat. When her and I met back in, even this 2003 now, 2004 or something like that, I remember I had been playing racquetball with her and, you know, I was 19 at the time trying to show off and <laughs> I literally was running backwards trying to hit the ball. So if you can imagine a racquetball, it's a racquetball court, it's closed off, it's it's, it's a room. And so we're, you know, running around hitting the ball. And then so I'm running backwards trying to look cool and hit the ball. And I slam my back against the back of the the I've done that a few times myself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it turns out that I, you know, at the time I had no clue about any of this stuff. So this is actually what got me into working with, uh, you know, chiropractors and actually even into like supplements and nutrition. All the health stuff that I do today, I attribute to this one accident, which is so crazy now that I think about it. Because after that accident, what happened was my ribs and my sternum had gotten misplaced a little bit, which if you've never had that done before, even if it's like a millimeter off, it's incredibly painful, you know, especially like if you lean forward, like it literally feels like a dagger's going through your thro- through your chest. So to complicate the matter, the night, like eight hours later when it started hurting, you know, we were just starting to date. So we were, you know, a little arguing a little bit over time and stuff like that. So I remember having an argument with her over AOL, if you remember that, like the instant messenger about something. And the timing of this injury with that argument, it gave me a panic attack for the first time in my life. I thought I was having a heart attack because like literally my my, my chest was like on fire and I was stressed. I was like, oh my God, I'm having a heart attack. Like, Can, is that possible? You know, you go on Google, you start searching stuff and you get all kinds of crazy stuff. And, you know, I was young, I was unaware, ignorant, let's put it this way. And that whole little microcosm, I mean, it led to a lot of things. I had anxiety for like three years and I had no clue about taking care of my health, but that really helped me turn around. And I got introduced to a chiropractor because that's what fixed the problem with the ribs, you know? And then since then I've, you know, I've done like uh, cranial sacral therapy. I'm seeing an osteopath now, actually, he's a very well-renowned guy. And uh, he did some like 
facial manipulation with with some of the bones in the face and he was explaining to me how just the the placement of certain bones can like you know impact like there was one under the the roof of the mouth i guess whatever that's like um contacting the pituitary gland or something like that i think or um one of those glands up in your in your brain yeah but it it can if it's misplaced it's let's say pushing on it a little bit and we're talking like slight amounts but then that starts producing less and there's you know a hormone reaction it's like holy smokes man everything is literally related so when you're talking about how the pancreas uh treating this guy's pancreas helped his tight back you know or you know whatever other symptoms it's like it's so crazy how on face value that seems like there's no because we're so used to and correct me if i'm wrong but at least modern medicine in the west doesn't have that whole systems approach it's more okay like what's the symptom and then let's chase the symptom and then you know go in circles with that so the you know regular typical western medicine is just now starting to uh, make advances in that mostly because the patients that are unhappy with the usual approach are finding other practitioners. So those mm-hmm. are usually found under um, functional medicine doctors or integrative medicine doctors, and those are the ones where all these patients that fall through the cracks end up going mm-hmm. that can kind of put all the pieces together in one doctor. What, um, does insurance pay for osteopaths? Like- yeah, so um, we can bill insurance, um, Billing insurance is always a pain no matter what style of medicine you practice, and it can be very cost-intensive for uh, having staff and all that kind of stuff. So most osteopaths will take insurance. Some of the really good ones um, that have a very small practice will do a cash-based practice Mm. um, just because they don't want to hassle with insurance companies and deal with all this. So it's both, but probably the majority do take insurance. Yeah, so it's pretty much, I mean... I guess you would say it's legitimately like recognized by insurance, is it? Oh yeah, you know? definitely. Um, and and if you can find a really good osteopath that takes insurance, it's ideal because then you pay a thirty or forty dollar copay um, just for the office visit. Uh, it's a pretty good deal. I have a question for you. So you know, in my case, like I said, I've had a lot of experience with this kind of stuff, so I definitely see a value in it. I see, you know, we're going to be talking a little bit more about a lot of the value that you can get from an approach with this. But for people who, let's say, have maybe gone to a chiropractor or let's say, you know, didn't have a good experience or, you know, there's that whole thing of, oh, they're just going to mess you up, that kind of stuff. Like, there's definitely that out there, right? So what would you say about that? What would you say about that whole idea? So <clears throat> it, it definitely matters a lot, the skill of the practitioner. Um, this type of medicine is just as much of probably more an art than a science. Mm. And so um, it's best to find an osteopath that you've heard good things about from somebody else or had a recommendation from. Mm -hmm. Um, But just like with any art, so you take violin, um, the difference between someone who's been playing violin for six months, which is painful, right? And that can hurt your ears versus (laughs) a master orchestra player Mm. is just uncomparable. Interesting. And so when you have an 80-year-old osteopath that's been in practice for 40 years yeah. and is a master at his craft, um, it's not going to hurt you and you, you probably get fantastic results. Yeah. So there's there's quite a range. And so, uh, yeah, it's helpful to find somebody good. I like how you compared it to an art because even when we we're talking off the air about the, uh, was it the founder? Was it the Andrew Taylor Still the, with the story you said that he was uh, realizing the benefit of not treating his patients and talking about circulation. I don't know if you want to go into a little bit of that story, but that really, uh, that was an interesting story. So I don't know if you can want to share that. Yeah. So um, the founder of osteopathy um, was an MD that practiced in the 1800s and um, did not get good results with the medicines of the time, which were what we usually consider um, either poisons or analgesics. So they had, you know, opiates. Um, like heroin, and they also had other, um, what aren't medications like uh, mercury or arsenic. And um, That's crazy to me that they were prescribing heroin up until like the 1930s or something, right? (laughs) Yeah, so, um, and he found that patients that didn't get treated with medications typically did better, and he found that uh, patients um, that had uh, good blood supply to a diseased area um, would improve much quicker and that by manipulation of either the fascia around the arteries or by manipulation of the spine 
freeing up the nerves uh, that dilate those arteries and improve blood flow, he would get much better results. And uh, he got better and better at his art throughout his time. Um, and so that kind of uh, brings up the third point I wanted to make about uh, how osteopaths are different. And that is um, that where a typical practitioner attacks a lesion or a disease, osteopaths typically use the approach of going after the health or improving the health of the mm. patient. And so in Dr. Still's case, the way that he did that is rather than, you know, giving you antibiotics because they didn't exist at the time, he would improve your health and improve your blood flow and improve the lymphatic drainage to an area so that it could heal. Mm. And the way that this works in modern times uh, with a traditional osteopath is you can treat patients uh, even if they're receiving traditional medical care. So let's say you have a patient that has cancer. You're probably not going to cure their cancer with osteopathy, but they're already receiving chemotherapy for that. And some chemotherapies, um, as you probably know, are really terrible. And patients oh, will yeah. say that the cure is worse than the disease. And so, whereas regular medicine only focuses on attacking that cancer with chemotherapy, uh, a traditional osteopath can really improve the patient's health so they can tolerate those side effects and so that they're much diminished. So I've had lots of patients where I've treated where instead of taking three weeks to recover from chemo, it takes them three or four days. Mm -hmm. Their nausea is much less, their pain is much less, their fear and their anxiety is much less. And be, and the difference is you're treating them to optimize their health rather than attacking their disease. And that's that's a little bit different than, um, say, a chiropractor or traditional. Yeah, that's a very different perspective because, you know, it, it reminds me, actually, the question I have for you, I don't know if you know any about this, but the Andrew Still, did he have any Eastern experience? He had some Indian. So he uh, grew up on the territory. Um, like, uh, like Native Kansas. American? Yeah, or Native American. See, it's interesting right. to me because I've also been a real uh, fan of, you know, the Eastern traditions. And I've read, you know, several books about kind of the philosophy of health in that part of town. And one of the big things is circulation. You know, for them, it's all about the circulation and moving, moving the body. You know, movement is life. So it's very interesting to me because that is a much more whole systems approach. You know, you can see that in how, how a lot of that stuff is approached. So to see how that evolved in a Western mindset, was it's a really cool thing because that's kind of shifting. Like you said, you know, things are shifting with health and people are seeing a more systems, whole systems approach. And a lot of it has to do with that circulation, the movement. If something is not moving... Uh, I mean, just look at water. If it's not moving, then it develops parasites and all kinds of stuff. So it has to keep moving. And I think our bodies are the same way. You know, I read a book, actually, just another thing you reminded me of is I read a book recently called um, The Longevity Diet by uh, Dr. Walter Longo. And very interesting. He talks about fasting and basically the the benefit of a restrict, you know, a short-term restriction on healing and and all kinds of it's very research based, really interesting book. And then he even came out with like a program where you buy it's like a five day fast, you know, it's a pre made meal kind of thing and it's brutal. But what it does is it triggers your body's like stem cell growth and all this kind of stuff. So when you were how I bring this up is you were saying how he discovered that by not treating them, you know, focusing on health, you know, gave the body a natural uh, you know, that natural healing that we have. Well, anyway, to be specific to what you were talking about, he had found in his research with cancer patients that if they did a three-day fast before the chemo, that it improved their situation by like 80%. It was like some drastic amount of, of result where basically the theory is that when you fast, after a certain point, the body goes into this protective mode and it's thinking, okay, I need to like conserve now. So it it protects all the cells somehow or basically puts a shield up in some form or fashion. But the problem is the cancer cells are, you know, they're not, they keep growing so they don't get that shield. You know, the other cells basically stop growing, say, hey, we need to put things on hold. So we put this little shield on. So because cancer cells are still growing, then the chemo, it's almost like helping the chemo selectively target the cancer cells, That's which brilliant. is a very, yeah, it was brilliant. And, you know, it's very research-based. I mean, you can read the book. It's very very interesting. And basically he recommends doing this, depending on how healthy you are. Let's say if you're a healthy person, 
than doing a five-day fast every six months or so to kind of help. And I can tell you, I did it. I had some digestive problems and, uh, you know, just kind of incorporating the principles in that book just through restriction, you know, not seriously doing something, but not doing something. And that kind of promoted a lot of healing. So it's it's very interesting you know, what, you, what you were talking about, how there's parallels with that. Um, well, here's a question for you. What what made you decide to be an osteopath? I mean, why not a dentist? Why not, you know, anything else? What particularly this? Well, <clears throat> I wanted to be a physician. Um, I studied engineering in college, and I, I liked engineering a lot, but uh, it, it wasn't quite as social as I enjoyed, and the um, benefits of your work are kind of uh, projected over time. So you may work on a project that, either doesn't ever make it to market or may make mm. it 20 years down the road. And that's a little bit difficult to work on. And I like interacting with people. I liked uh, helping people. And it seemed like a great career. Um, I didn't know what an osteopath was. I ended up at an osteopathic school by chance because that was one that I got into. Mm. And um, I didn't really know... Uh, anything about osteopathy and even through school they teach you the very basics the first two years of school but it's sort of like teaching you the basics of surgery you're certainly not a surgeon when you graduate medical school even though you've done a little bit the osteopathic treatment is similar you learn some basic techniques uh, but you're certainly not a great osteopath yeah it's an art right (laughs) it is an art right and so um, when I finished, I was actually in residency for internal medicine, and I was thinking about going into gastroenterology because um, you get to do procedures and work with your hands, and uh, I appreciate that. And uh, I had to do a rotation with this osteopath, and um, I decided to keep an open mind about it, and I kind of liked um, the stuff we learned in school. And when I worked with this osteopath, I was blown away. Hmm. I mean, this guy, um, and to be fair, he was also an uh, integrative medicine practitioner, so he had studied a few other healing modalities. But he was mostly an osteopath, and he was fantastic. And um, when he was out of the room, I would sort of grill patients to see, you know, what they really came in with and, you know, did they really get better. And um, his cure rate was between 80 and 90%, which I'd never seen anywhere uh, with any kind of right. regular physician. And the stuff that people were coming in for was already the stuff that they had been to see several doctors mm-hmm. and nobody could fix. And this guy was getting amazing results. And when I saw that, I I thought, um, you know, this is something I need to look into. Hmm. And so I found um, continuing medical education classes outside of um, the the learning I was already doing in residency, and during my vacations, I would go and take classes. Um, and then when I graduated, I continued to take classes. And I um, hadn't been doing it very long, um, and I got lucky on a few cases. So, um, you know, just like the, the violin analogy, you may play a song perfectly one time, and then you can't do it again, and, you're, and you think, how did I do that? You were in the zone. Or dancing. Um, <laughs> And so um, I'll tell you about a case I had pretty early on. I was, uh, it was a fellow resident, and so I felt confident at the time I could practice on friends and family because they weren't yeah. paying me anything, and so <laughs> if they didn't get better, I didn't No lawsuits there or anything. <laughs> so I had a fellow resident um, who was telling me that she was taking ibuprofen every day, and um, so I was scolding her for, you know, she's going to hurt her um, stomach and get an ulcer or shut down her kidneys and... But I, you know, asked, you know, why are you taking this every day anyway? And she said, well, my elbow hurts and it's been hurting every day for the last six years. So I started out and I just uh, felt the elbow and it felt a little restricted. So I balanced it and her pain got better immediately and then came right back the next day. Hmm. So it was the same thing I talked about before where, um, you know, you don't want to just treat the primary thing. You want to look for the cause and you also want to look at the rest of the patient. So I sort of expanded my vision rather than just the elbow. I looked all the way down to the wrist and all the way up to the shoulder. And I waited, um, uh, which is something I learned in some of these classes, rather than just going in and start fixing stuff, just Mm -hmm. to wait and see what you can sense or feel. Mm. And after about 15 minutes of an awkward silence and just sensing, I could feel a restrictive line um, down in the forearm. 
between the radius and the ulna. And uh, so I asked her about it and said, do you know, I, I can feel this thing down here. Do you know what that is? And she said, oh, yeah, when I was about six years old, I had a fracture there, but it healed up fine. And I said, oh, well, that would have been helpful information to know when we started treating hmm. you. But I looked down at that spot and I was treating it and I could feel that there was motion in all four bones, but they weren't in sync. Hmm. And so whenever she would move, it didn't move together. And the pain was up in the elbow, but the lesion was down in her forearm. And I held all four bones at a balance point until they synced back up and started moving in a normal, homogenous fashion. And her elbow pain went away, and it never came back. Wow. And that was, say, five years ago or so. And can you imagine, she probably, let's say, you didn't have that encounter. Given all whatever possibilities, we think we're doing the right thing and taking that pain, you know, or the pain med or whatever every day to to alleviate that pain. But that has a long-term consequence that can... That can mess you up. You know, that can mess your kidneys up. It can give you stomach ulcers. There's a lot of stuff. It's just not good. And so after that, and that was lucky, all right? I wasn't that skilled at the time. That was a lucky (laughs) result. But after I got that, I said, there's definitely something to this now, Mm. and I really need to explore this field. And so at that point- This was in residency? Yeah, that was um, in my end of my first year, beginning of second year residency. Gotcha. So that was about four or five years ago. And since that time, I've been aggressively um, educating myself and pursuing this field and studying as much as I can and practicing as much as I can and getting better and better. Um, but I still have a long way to go. Just like you mentioned in the beginning, the more you learn about something, the more yep. you realize you really have a lot to learn. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon. You know, it's, uh, we, we're more confident when, when we know less, right? In that sense, in some sense, definitely. you know, we definitely get confidence with repetition, but there is definitely that sense of ignorance is bliss. Um, what is next for you? I mean, as far as, obviously, this is an art form, and it, it's a lifetime to master. You know, wh- where you're going to be now as an osteopath, and let's say another 10, 15, 20 years, it's going to continually grow. So Im- immediately right now, what's what's it for you? Like, what is the, the vision that's moving you forward? Or let's say the goal? Um, so... Um... Right now, um, I, it's complicated because there's other life factors, right? So gotcha, I have yeah. a wife and, and kid, and so that's become a big part of my life. Um, Congratulations, and, by the way. Uh, that's pretty you. awesome. <laughs> yeah, I have a wonderful wife and a beautiful five-month baby boy named Matthew. So that's a big part of my life um, and the other work. What, I, what I'd like to do, so I'm an internist or an internal medicine doctor. I yeah. treat patients in the hospital. And one thing that would be fantastic is if I could bridge those two fields. So Mm. I am treating more patients in the hospital now, but I'm trying to find the best places where osteopathic medicine and hospital medicine merge. Um, Do they have osteopaths at hospitals? um, There are some hospitals uh, in the country, few, but some that have a consult service where you can consult an osteopath and and Mm. come see patients. It's not very common, but there are some... um, practitioners in the hospital that also do a little bit of osteopathic manipulation like myself. Hmm. And so, but they're, they're very different schools of thought. So bridging them into one um, sort of idea that, that still fits, mm-hmm. um, that would be a great goal of mine. I, I would eventually, I want to keep working with mentors, grow my skills, be able to help a wider range of patients. Um, and eventually I'd like to set up an outpatient practice step more away from hospital medicine um, and do that. As my skill grows and I become more competent, I eventually would like to do some teaching to kind of get more people involved into the art. Yeah. So those are some of my mid-range goals. Nice. I mean, that's, you know, I think it's all about we're we're living in it. I just, yesterday, I just bought this course um, that's being like super heavily marketed, so I totally fell for it, but it's going to be a great course. It's a, it's this big marketing course by Tony Robbins and, and Dean Graziosi. They put together, um, anyway, it's like a how to create a, your, how to extract what you know and teach it to others and make a business out of it, you know, and, and in, a, in a very good way, you know, very positive value bringing way because that's the future. And the whole, the ways I'm bringing that up is their whole direction with it is that education um, 
is going to be disrupted pretty soon because the old system just doesn't work, you know? So, and I think that, you know, you, you start to see, I've talked to a lot of people about this and it's all kind of related. Like you see industries that are getting disrupted. Like first it was like internet and communication, you know, and now you're starting to see clothing getting disrupted. Like the old Dillard's and Macy's and stuff, that's just not where people go. You go on Facebook and they get these shirts with a million qualities that they've been, you know, like spy engineered and you can get them for, you know, more affordably. So that's getting disrupted. Now you look at education and I think in 10 years, we're going to see a drastic difference in how people educate themselves as a p- compared to like, let's say 10, 20 years ago, where you're just going to school and getting a degree. So now the next one is healthcare too. I think healthcare is also going to get disrupted, you know, and people are, like you said, people are starting to see that healing uh, is not going to a doctor and, and putting a patch on, you know, an issue. Like when I had that anxiety attack, I remember uh, from that injury I was telling you about way back when, I had no idea how to deal with it. It was the first time I ever, so I went to the emergency room, obviously, you know, that's what you do when you freak out. So, and they gave me this Ativan, you know, which is a anti, whatever, schizophrenic or whatever. Anxiety yeah, medicine, anxiety, yeah. yeah. So I I took that stuff. It calmed me down, obviously, but man, dude, the, the next night, I don't know if it was like a reaction to it or like, because they gave me a prescription to fill and just start taking it. You know, they don't they don't look at you as a as a, let's say a whole patient, they say, oh, here's the symptom. Let me put a, a bandaid on it. And that next night was like, I'll never forget it. Like I had these cold sweat because I didn't take, I'm like, I'm not taking this stuff. I'm not going to make a habit out of it. My doctor let, you know, recommended like Lexapro as antidepressant. I'm like, that's not the issue. Like there's something, you know, I need to first off, not be anxious and not worry that this is a, you know, an issue and just get through that. But anyway, that next night, like my body just I don't know what happened. It was like shutting down. <laughs> like literally I could not sleep. Massive like tremoring and cold sweats. And I don't know if it was like withdrawal from the Ativan. I really don't know what it was. But that in a nutshell, you know, that picture of health is is what's going to push people into, especially with the internet now and being able to reach out to people and, and learn. I think we're going to see a massive shift in, in that whole integrated uh, direction. What are what are some directions that people can go to osteopathic osteopathic care for? Like, what are some conditions that people would say they so, would go for? Because um, they optimize your health. Really, anybody can go to an osteopath, even if they're not suffering from something specific. And they may find ways to optimize your health, and you may end up feeling better uh, than you were, and not realize that you weren't as healthy as your optimal. Hmm. But I do want to mention some specific things. Um, that uh, people um, don't really know exist. Um, gotcha. Just like your chest pain, I can't tell you how many patients have come to the hospital with chest <laughs> pain, got a $5,000 nuclear stress test, an echocardiogram, got put on acid blockers for two weeks, and came to me eventually, and two minutes later after treating their chest, their chest pain was all gone. G- that and, was just like from ribs being out of place or something? Just from ribs being out of place. Oh, my it's God. It's extremely common. <laughs> But uh, I do want to mention some other things that people may not know about. So um, one um, that I feel fairly passionate about is uh, breech babies. So um, when a woman is pregnant, um, the ideal position is with the head down. It's Mm -hmm. a lot safer for delivery. And so sometimes you run across babies where their feet are down. It makes the delivery uh, much higher risk, and more often they end up going to C-sections. And the Traditional approach up till now, if you're not an osteopath, we actually consider this almost slightly barbaric, mm-hmm. is they'll lay the woman down. Sometimes they'll use some sedative or pain medication, but they basically push on the baby and try to force it around. It's wow. excruciatingly painful. It works about 50% of the time. And there's a very, very slight risk that um, the placenta can rupture and they could need emergent C-section right there. Wow. So it's a dangerous procedure. It's excruciatingly painful, and it doesn't work that often. And so what an osteopath does is rather than taking the baby and force them where you want them to go, they treat the space, and they treat the mother, and a few days later, the baby typically flips on their own. Wow. So to me, the fact that nobody knows that That's this exists and that it's not utilized nearly as much as it could be. And the reason why that came up is because my wife uh, has become a doula. 
not sure if you're familiar with doula, but there's that's where they help with uh, with the birth. Yeah, so they they are uh, uh, assistant and coach and advocate for the mother, gotcha. where everybody else is focused on the child. They really help the mother. And I'm an internal medicine doctor, so I don't see a lot of pregnant women. But because my wife's a doula, she's sent clients to me, and so I've flipped a couple babies using this method, um, and it works very well. And I've spoken with some of my colleagues that had a family practice that see lots of uh, women, and their percentages are probably in the 75 to 85 percent range for success. And wow. some of the times that it doesn't work, there's a very specific reason, like the cord is wrapped around the neck, and you wouldn't want the baby to flip, right, right, or that kind of stuff. So breech babies is one big one. Another one uh, that most people don't know about is um, children with recurrent ear infections. So typically they get these kids get antibiotics, and then months later they get more antibiotics. Oh yeah, that was me, man. Happens nice. eight times. All the time. Sometimes they'll get ear tubes even. And so just like you mentioned before, it's an issue with movement, right? Any mm-hmm. any stasis in the body is going to get infected. So it's not like you had different bugs than anybody else. Right. It's that your ears didn't drain the same way that everybody else exactly. did. And so if you're able to free up the motion in those cranial bones hmm. and the ears drain fine, usually you treat the kid one time and their current infection goes away. They stop getting recurrent Without antibiotics. So it depends on the severity of the infection when they present. If it's already pretty severe, I probably would use antibiotics. Um, But if it's in between, I wouldn't. And um, I did treat a little child who was two that was starting to get an ear infection. Her ear was red. She was tugging on it. It was pain. She'd already had a prior ear infection. And I treated her ear, and the pain went away, and symptoms went away without antibiotics. And she never got enough. You know, it's so crazy. That reminds me of my own situation. I I have been piecing my health, my own. You know, your health is a puzzle, and you piece it together over the course of your life. And I think these kind of conversations are super valuable to encourage people to to go out and and investigate your own puzzle. We're all different. The more you learn, the more you realize like so many things are variable with your genes, with your upbringing, with your conditions. And uh, to give you an example. I had about like $2,000 worth of, ca- like, no, more than that. That was what I paid. I mean, we're looking at like, let's say 20 cavities on my teeth in the last maybe three years that I've fixed. These cavities have been around for a while, but the cap maybe more than that. But anyways, over the course of a few years, I had a ton of cavities and most of them were like small little problems, you know? So I'm like, what gives? Like, what happened? You know, like I've been taking calcium, I'm taking my supplements, I'm doing this, that. Anyway, long story short, what I found out was that my frequent ear infections as a kid, and th- and this gets even weirder, but I'll start with this. My frequent ear infections as a kid, basically because I took a lot of antibiotics, I was in Romania, it was, you know, back then, it, we, that was what they did. And even here today, it caused, as a kid, it causes a deficiency in your teeth to develop, you know, so the calcium somehow, there, it causes patches in your teeth to develop not as strong, which predisposes you to gum line cavities as an adult. Because I ate very frequently, especially being an athlete and trying to constantly eat, I didn't make a habit. Now I do. I'm like super anal about my about my oral health now. But, you know, it's like I didn't brush after every meal. So you would have these little bits of food that will create these cavities. So you've got a ton of cavities just from literally one thing leads to another, leads to another. Now, get this. I took this, I was with another naturopath probably like maybe six months ago or something, I took this uh, food intolerance test called the Carroll Method, the Carroll Intolerance Test. And it was a little woo-woo for me, but you know what? It's crazy, man. Like, basically, she pricked my ear with some blood, and then they, you know, sent it off to a place where they tested it with, like, energy testing, you know? So, you know, from off the bat, I'm like, okay, (laughs) this is costing me 250 bucks. Like, it better be some kind of insight. But anyway, it came back, and it told me that I was intolerant to dairy. I've been eating dairy my whole life. I took, I went off dairy, my skin issues went away, you know, all this kind of stuff. So then I, I, somehow I got in a conversation about her, uh, about my ear infections. And she said, yeah, you know, it's funny. All the kids that I've tested to be dairy intolerant also have ear infections. Mm. Like there's a relationship between if you're dairy intolerant and you're eating, you know, dairy as a kid, that you get a higher incidence of ear infections. And my, my parents were giving me milk all the time as a kid, you know, so it's like, Milk leads to ear infections, leads to gum line cavity. You know, it's like, what the heck? You know, so you start putting these things together and you see how everything's related 
and it just really blows your mind. You know, it's just absolutely fascinating. So anyway, one little tangent there. Yeah. But <laughs> so one other one, last one I'll mention is um, viral illnesses. So there are some viruses that we're now learning to treat like HIV or hepatitis C, but most viruses we don't really have medications for. And so because you're optimizing the patient's health, um, they're able to fight viral infections better. So patients that have mono, say, or shingles, um, which is a reactivation of a virus, um, you can rapidly speed up their recovery and help their health. So there are, and, and there's many more. I mean, there are many, many things that osteopaths can treat, but those are some of the um, things that... The baby flipping thing is fascinating. Yeah, that's that's so cool. That's, that's a huge, that's, people should know about that. I mean, I'm guessing that's a huge issue, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, give me some, you know, if you could, if people who are listening and if, if let's say you could break down a couple of general wellness tips, let's say when you're not seeing the doctor or if you haven't gotten a chance to hook up with a good osteopath, what are some things that you would recommend that have been your biggest takeaways about health and healing? You know, what, what, what would be Noel's tips for <laughs> for promoting so, healthy? So uh, a healthy you've already body. touched on two really big things that are important for everybody, right? So you mentioned things with your diet. So diet's huge, and then stasis. So um, and the opposite of that, which is movement. So mm-hmm. staying active and eating healthy are probably the best two things. Yeah. Uh, but aside from that, which most people already know, um, one thing I tell my patients is to do something that you love. And this sort of aligns with the finding the uh, I love that health in the patient um, because there are a lot of stressors in life. There's a lot of things that ramp up um, your nervous system, uh, that make you anxious, that make you depressed. And doing something you love, um, whatever that may be, even if it expends energy and you don't have a lot of time and you're pushing yourself to do it, um, that will um, take down those stress levels which um, will much reduce your risk of getting chronic disease. Hmm. Um, I remember they did a longitudinal study, one of the biggest ones, and I don't have it on me right now, but basically they found like the two most common, or they'll say the two most important indicators of long health was your integration to society, which is basically your sense of purpose or doing what you love, right? And then your your connection to other people, like if you have healthy relationships. Yeah. You know, obviously diet and exercise is important, but having, like you said, that that direction, having a sense that you, you feel fulfilled, uh, that's huge. That's huge for health. It Big keeps time. you moving, keeps you active, keeps you going, you know. Yeah, the mental health is an incredible precursor to physical health. So mm. being happy with your relationships and things like that really helps keep your body healthy. So another thing I tell patients is to rest every day. And when I say rest, I don't mean sleep um, because not all sleep is restful and you don't have to sleep to rest. Um, So there's lots of ways to do this. You know, if you have time to practice and learn, you can meditate, which I do every day, which is the way that I but How do you meditate exactly? So there's a lot of different ways, but the way that I tell my patients that's sort of an easy way to get started with that is just use your breath to release your anxiety and your tension um, so that um, lay in a quiet, still spot and take deep breaths. And every time you breathe out, you're not just breathing out your air, but you're breathing out everything that you're holding on to. Hmm. So we have a all at any given time are dealing with several problems at once, which is fine, and they're not going to go away because you're breathing. Right. But you don't have to hang on to them. They're still there. You're not going to forget about them. But every time you take a breath and you breathe out, you release everything that you're trying to think about and hold on to. And you can let your brain kind of just run, and it's going to think up new things and and kind of stream. Um, But every time that that happens, you just come back to your breath, deep breath in and let go of the things you're holding on to. And usually if you're, it's very hard the first few minutes, but if you're disciplined and keep coming back to your breath, eventually those thoughts that are streaming through your head start to quiet a little bit. And eventually you come to a place where you're really resting. And it's the same kind of rest that if you went out, say, into nature and you just spent 
you know, some time out there, say you went camping for a few days and everything kind of quiets down and calms down and you really say sitting down watching a stream or watching mm-hmm. the sunset and you have that just peaceful sensation. You want to hit that kind of rest for a few minutes every day. And if you live in the city, it's even more important because there's a lot of stressors. You're constantly stimulated, yeah, in one and way or another. And you're stimulated. So if you can take a few minutes out of your day, for me, if I can do this, it's as good as an hour nap if I yeah. can rest for 15 minutes in this manner. So that's a big thing. And then the last one um, is to limit cro- chronic stressors, um, either physical or psychological. And so if there's things going on in your life that are repeated triggers for you, um, you know, I would try to change that that area of your life. You know, if it's a relationship that's really harmful, I would recommend getting out of it. Now, sometimes you can't, right? If it's family, you're not going to be able to get out of your family. And if right. it's work that you have to be able to work, um, then you can't change that. So things you can do if you're in a situation where you have chronic stressors that you can't do anything about. One, you can see an osteopath, um, which can getting treated, say, a few times a year can really help mitigate Mm -hmm. the accumulation of that stress. And the other thing um, that's sort of my osteopathic uh, principle that we've already talked about is rather than um, fighting the disease, um, I stay with the health. Mm -hmm. So when you run across a problem or something that's um, an issue or a lesion, let's say, um, rather than attacking it head on, stay with what seems like the health in the situation. So practically speaking, let me give a couple examples. So let's say, um, let's say you're on Facebook and, um, you know, someone, one of your friends posts some inflammatory political comment or something, right? That it's really doesn't easy. happen at all, right? Yeah. So it's really easy to attack the lesion, right? You go straight at them and tell right. them they didn't know what the hell he's talking about. And um, so you could do it that way. Uh, and what will happen is like 50 comments later right. and 100 notifications. You get sucked into the, the black hole. Right. Or you could, uh, maybe another time outside, you could tell them the points that you do agree with and get a conversation going. So you, you stick with the health in the situation, which is mm. you know your common ground. Focus on where it can grow, not where it can degenerate, basically. Nobody ever changes their mind from a direct head-to-head confrontation. Right. And so another example is I was with my son and wife in the car a couple days ago, and he's five months old, so he only knows how to communicate one way. Um, So he he was not very happy, probably overtired, and started screaming. And so my wife, I love my wife, and she's such an amazing mother, um, (laughs) But she went right after it, right? He's screaming, so she's going after him, shushing him, and trying to get him to calm down. And when she works that way, it does work sometimes. And Mm -hmm. sometimes you have to go head-to-head, but you're always drained afterward. It is tiring fighting a lesion directly. And Mm -hmm. so for myself, rather than fighting the lesion and trying to get my son to quiet down, I know what he loves, which is singing. So I completely ignored his screaming. I just started singing a song he likes. And I just waited, singing the song, which I enjoyed, and I was having fun singing it, Mm. and I was staying in the health for me at the moment. And a few minutes later, he started listening to the song, and he quieted down, and a few minutes later, he just fell asleep. And I wasn't exhausted because I wasn't fighting um, the problem. So it's... That's really interesting to me, actually. I've been really thinking and talking a lot about this principle, uh, which is basically how do you handle... A situation. It's in Eastern tradition. There's a name for it. It's called Wu Wei, which is basically how do you deal with the go with the grain, right? So you go with the. It's like the difference between using a sail and rowing a boat. One is approaching it with with the, let's say masculine energy or head on or you know attack, right? Whereas the other one is utilizing alignment and, and changing space and kind of a more indirect approach. But like you said. Uh, in many ways, it's much more effective because you're not you're not using energy. You're not having to waste energy. Although it does take awareness, right? It does take a, a conscious choice because we, our natural response is to respond the same way, right? So if something is coming head on, we want to push back against it. Usually, I mean, that's how I tend to respond. Yeah, myself included. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's really interesting to be able to to do that. I think that's a huge thing for health, right? To be to be able to recognize a situation and say, okay. How can I 
go around this without wasting my energy? What is the impact on your health, right? And, and your healing, especially if you're sick, right? Imagine how much more sick you get if you get stressed out. So, well, how do people find a good uh, osteopath? So what are some good ways that they can evaluate? So if you know somebody that's gotten good results and treated by somebody, that's obviously one of the best ways. Um, If you don't know anybody and you'd like to find an osteopath, there's a few different ways. So one of my main mentors who I study with, his name is Dr. Jealous or James Jealous, and he has a website um, that has at least some of the practitioners that he's fully trained. Um, and so he has a website. It's James Jealous. It's uh, J-E-A-L-O-U-S dot com. And he has a directory in there where you can look physician up by state. Um, and so that would be one way. If you don't find one close to you, um, you can just Google and look for someone that's board certified in osteopathic manipulative medicine or neuromuscular medicine. So those are OMM and NMM. Those are physicians that have specialized just in the manipulative medicine. Um, And there's a wide range of them, just like we talked about before. You know, you may find one that doesn't help you. That doesn't necessarily mean osteopathy can't help you. Hmm. But you may need to find someone with more experience or different experience. Um, But those people, at least, that's their specialty. That's what they do. And then... um, if you're local to the Phoenix area, since that's where we're talking now, yeah. I have a friend here. Her name is Bonnie Wong, and she's a fantastic osteopath. Um, and she works over at A.T. Still University. And A.T. Still University has a clinic there. Um, so if you're in the Phoenix area, um, I'll give you their phone number. It's 480-248-8198. Or you can go to the website atsu.edu. Um, and they have a clinic there, so Bonnie's not the only practitioner there. They have uh, other osteopaths, but she's just one that I know personally that's good. That's in that area. That's awesome. And so you're up in Oregon, right? Yeah, I'm up in Oregon, and I live in a tiny town called Bandon. And if any of you <laughs> are ever up there, I'm happy to treat you, but it's a pretty small remote How many place. people live in Bandon? About 3,000 people. 3,000, wow. mostly retirees. It's a beautiful wow. place, though. What motivated you to, to go up there? So two, a couple of reasons. Um, one of the biggest pulls was one of my main mentors, this great osteopath um, who's uh, in his 70s, been practicing forever, and just an incredible teacher. He lives near there, and I was flying out there to go to classes six to eight times a year. Mm. And so the town I moved to is an hour away from where he does half his classes and three hours away from where he does the other classes, so I don't have to fly to go, and I still train with him frequently. And then my parents moved up there, which is how I found out about the job. And it turned out to be a great opportunity um, work-wise to move there. And if I'm going to live in a small town, at least it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in Yeah, I bet. Yeah, it's right on the coast. So you have the beautiful Oregon coast with big rocks and beautiful sunsets. And then you're also right in the woods. So there's great hiking and mountain biking trails. Oh, that sounds awesome. All kinds of. How's the weather right now? Is it like super? So right now is perfect. Or? When I left, it was seventy-five degrees and sunny, and it was probably the nicest day wow. of the entire time I stayed there. But <laughs> good thing the weather here is pretty good. I mean, right yeah. now it's it's oh, kind it's of an exception. Here too. That's awesome, man. Well, all right, I got one more question for you. What is one thing that you are grateful for today? Um, put you on the spot here. <laughs> So I'm most grateful at the moment for my family. So I don't know if anybody's ever had a kid, but um, they're pretty incredible. And they're more work than anything you can imagine, probably. And they really change your life um, from a time and work standpoint. But they also um, are um, sort of reteach you... um, how to be joyful for no reason. Hmm. So they have spontaneous joy uh, throughout the day, uh, most of the day. And, um, they remind you what it was like to be a kid again. <laughs> yeah. So there, there's. Uh, I'm most grateful for my wonderful wife and for our baby. And, um, they can teach you a lot. Uh, children, I think. Can teach you a lot. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, we've been talking health 
and healing with my good friend, Dr. Noel Pence. Pleasure to have you on the show, man. This has been yeah, a blast. Been fun. Hopefully it's really going to contribute to your health journey, listening and go and explore. You know, like I said, in my own life, this stuff has made a huge, huge difference. And I found out about it through an accident. So you never know what uh, what's on the other side for you if you go and explore. So here is my takeaway for this awesome episode. Our health is the foundation for everything that we want in life. Without good health, we lack the proper energy to not only do what we want to do, but to enjoy all of the beauty that life has to offer. In addition to common sense and good health practices like eating a healthy diet, staying active, and minimizing toxins such as tobacco or alcohol, Dr. Noel recommends regularly doing what you love, resting for a short period of time each day, and reducing your exposure to physical and psychological stressors. The body is an amazing machine that is designed to heal. All we have to do is support it through our own continued and mindful efforts. For more episodes and weekly content, stay connected at danceoflife.com.